Feels a little like 1965 in here, doesn't it? <laughs> that took some of you back. I wasn't around then, but it took some of you back, right? That's uh, the birds from 1965. Turn, turn, turn. But did you know it goes back even further than that? It goes back to Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That's where they got um, their content for that song. And there's also another song I want to point you to here in a minute. I am not going to sing it. Um, and it comes from a musical that many of you are familiar with called Fiddler on the Roof. Um, and the author of Ecclesiastes could have um, written this song too. If you've seen the music before, it's the, uh, the wedding scene. So there's this young couple getting married. The entire community is around them. The, the men are on one side. The women are on the other. It's not exactly a rap battle, but they kind of go back and forth a little bit um, with this song. The dad starts, is this the little girl I carried? Is this the little boy at play? And then the mother sings, I don't remember growing older. When did they? When did she get to be a beauty? When did he grow to be so tall? Wasn't it yesterday that they were small? And then everybody together, the chorus, sunrise, sunset, sunrise, sunset, swiftly fly the years. One season following another, laden with happiness and tears. How could he be getting married? <laughs> Wasn't I just holding her in my arms? Like, I just, I remember them playing outside as little kids just yesterday. Like, I don't remember growing older. When did they? Like, they were just kids. Isn't it incredible how quick time flies? I, I've come to the conclusion that life is like a dryer in a laundromat. It goes round and round and round and round and round and round and round, and we all end up wrinkled in the end. <laughs> right? Life is time and life, it just, just goes round. It's one cycle after the other after the other, and we all end up wrinkled when all is said and done. This seems to be what the birds sang about from Ecclesiastes 3. It seems to be what um, the, the men and women are singing at this funeral from Fiddler on the Roof, and it seems to be what the teacher is saying in this very famous poem, but I want to walk through it today and see if that's actually what he's saying, all right? So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, we're going to jump right in, starting in verse 1, says this, there's a time for everything and a season for every activity under the heavens, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant, and a time to uproot. So the, the, this is a poetic device called mirrorism, where it's not, um, he's not just talking about the time of birth and the time of death, he's talking about the time of birth and time of death and everything in between. The time of planting, the time of uprooting, and everything in between. And both of these two, these first two couplets, you notice we have no control over? You have no control over when you're born. You have no control over when you die. You have no control over, well, you know, when to plant and when to reap. You say, yes, I do. I can, I can plant in the middle of the winter if I want to. Well, if you're free to do that, you're just not going to reap anything because the time for reaping was set by someone else. And if you want any kind of gain, if you want any kind of harvest, you have to go with the one who set the time. Verse 3 a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build. The end of the Gilded Age, a lot of wealthy Chicagoites were looking for places to put their money. And some of them chose Lake Geneva, Wisconsin as their summer home residence. One of them you might be familiar with, Mr. Wrigley. 
as in Wrigley Field, as in Wrigley Gum. He made a lot of money selling gum. And he spent some of it in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. He, he bought a mile and a half of lakefront property and built a huge mansion on it where his family could spend the weekends and, and summers. And then in 1984, a developer bought it and leveled it <laughs> so he could build a whole bunch of other little McMansions all over this mile and a half property. Why? It's a time to tear down, time to build. We moved to Topeka back in um, 2002. There was a little restaurant called Winstead's out by the mall. Some of you remember Winstead's. It ain't there anymore. Tore it down, put up Longhorn Steakhouse or whatever it was after Winstead's, right? It's a time to build, time to tear. This poem is about normal life and how it goes round and round and round and round and round and in the end, we all end up wrinkled. That's what he's talking about. Verse four, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. I have an aunt who's coming to the end of her life here pretty soon. Um, what I remember, Pam, my aunt Pam, from, from early on was, was fun. She was so energetic, so joyful, just had so much life. And about 20 years ago, the age of 42, she's diagnosed with MS and just, just rapidly declines in everything. I was talking to um, my cousins, her sons, two of my best friends growing up were my cousins. And uh, one of them texted me and said, yeah, it looks like it's gonna be the end of a long, sad ordeal, but we're so grateful she'll be home soon. So much laughter, so much weeping, so much mourning, so much dancing in her life, in their family, in her marriage, in that text. <laughs> it's everything crammed, it's just, it's life. This is what happens in life. Verse five, a time to scatter stones and a time to gather them. This is talking about um, war in ancient times where rocks were thrown onto cultivated fields so they couldn't plant crops. It was one of the ways that you dominated your enemy. And so at the end of the war, you would go and you would gather all of those stones and put a wall of stones around the fence so you could start to plant again. And then another war came in and they would scatter the stones and they would gather them and scatter. And there's, again, there's a time to scatter, a time to gather. At the end of verse five, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. So you're dropping your son or daughter off their, their freshman year in college. That's a time to embrace, right? That's, that's a moment for a long embrace. If you're in public during COVID, that's a time to refrain from embracing, right? Like there's a time for that, but there's also a time to refrain from embracing. Verse six, a time to search and a time to give up. Have you noticed we're no longer looking for the children that you saw on the side of milk cartons from the 1980s? There was a time to search for them, but there was also a time to stop searching for them. A time to keep and a time to throw away. If your family's anything like our family, there are things that we can easily get rid of to create space. And then there are things that we keep no matter how often we use them, right? They're in boxes in the storage room collecting dust, but we're not throwing them away because they're precious to us. It brings back memories. There's, there's other things attached 
to that. There's a time to keep, a time to throw away. Verse 7, a time to tear and a time to mend. This is referring to the ancient practice of expressing sorrow or mourning by tearing clothes. And then after that period of mourning had gone away, you mended the clothes back together because clothes were expensive and you didn't have a lot of them. So there's a time for that. Time to be silent and a time to speak. This is one that most people haven't learned yet. Right? Some of us, we've never stopped talking. Others of us barely utter a word. But, but humans are supposed to learn along the way that there are appropriate moments to speak and there are other moments where you zip it. He's just, he's just talking about life. He's just talking about life here. Verse 8, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. i got to admit that it sounds a whole lot better coming from the birds in the song, but then when you get to this, like, is that in the Bible? Like a time for hate? Really? But don't think about hating people. Think about hating injustice. Is it okay to hate injustice? Absolutely. Absolutely. Abraham Lincoln, he talked about the um, first time he saw a slave offered for sale on the New Orleans slave block. And this, is, this is what he said. He said, there was a rising hatred inside of me against slavery. And I swore if someday I could do something about it, I would do something about it. And he did, didn't he? That, that started, the, the genesis of that was hatred for the injustice the institution of slavery. Time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. It was June 4th, 1940. The Nazis were making their way across France on their way to England. And Winston Churchill stood before the House of Commons and pronounced, we shall not flag or fail. We shall go on to the end. We shall fight in France. We shall fight on the seas and oceans. We shall fight with growing confidence and growing strength in the air. We shall defend our island. Whatever the cost may be, we shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. And even if, which I do not for a moment believe, this island or a large part of it were subjugated and starving, then our empire beyond the seas, armed and guarded by the British fleet, would carry on the struggle until, in God's good time, the new world, with all its power and might, steps forth to rescue and the liberation of the old. Whew. He could write. It's a time for war. It's a time to defend. There's a time for peace. And then the poem ends. 14 positive, 14 negative, and it's just like they cancel each other out. You get to the end of the poem, it's like, did we gain anything? It's like a dryer. It goes round and round and round and round. At the end, you're just wrinkled. What? What's the point? Like, what's the point of going through another cycle? What's the point of life? Like, he's asking really big questions here. He goes on to say that in a little bit of a different way in verse 9. He says, what do workers gain from their toil? I have seen the burden God has laid on the human race. He's, he's looking at life. He's looking at just the cycle of time, and he's, he says, it's just a burden. Life is hard. Living under the sun, living as if God doesn't exist, living as if you know horizontal is all there is, living as if earth is all there is. It's just repetitive. It's purposeless. It's 
It's unfulfilling. It's meaningless. If you're looking for life under the sun, all we get, one season following another, laden with happiness and tears. But here's the good news. Life under the sun is not all there is. There is more to life. And uncharacteristically, the teacher shifts to a positive tone in verse 11. He says, he, who's he talking about? He's talking about God in verse 10. So this is just a continuation of that thought. He has made everything beautiful in its time. You may have heard that before. This may be a part of Ecclesiastes you've heard before and you just didn't even know. He has made everything beautiful in its time. He doesn't say everything is beautiful because Clearly, everything is not beautiful. The world is full of ugly. He says God makes everything beautiful in its time. So in God's timing, and that may be after you're gone from this world. In God's timing, he can make everything beautiful. And you say, really? Tim, can he make, can he make cancer beautiful? And, and, and they, they may not say this, but there are people in our church who have gone through that and are going through that. And they would say, I don't know if I would say he makes it beautiful, but I don't know if I would trade that for anything because of what I've learned about God. For some reason, some way, somehow, God made that beautiful to them. He makes everything beautiful in its time. How does he do that? How does he do that? Teacher goes and shows us four specific ways he does that. The first way is he puts a longing in our heart. Look at verse 11. It says, he has also set eternity in the human heart. Circle that word eternity. We're not exactly sure what he means here. Um, it, it could be the capacity to see beyond this present moment, like to see ahead and, and, and then behind. Like think, think about this. Your dog doesn't plan out his week, right? Because... God has not set eternity in your dog's heart. <laughs> he said in your heart. So you can think ahead. You can plan ahead. You can look back and you can remember. So that, that might be what he's talking about here, but I think it's deeper than that. I think, I think this is going to a longing that we all have at different moments and times in our life, a longing that things in this world can't provide. It's, it's, it's a longing for something we can't find under the sun, that we can't find apart from God. He's placed that desire in our hearts. C.S. Lewis says it best. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Paul talks about being aliens in this world right? There's, there's something in us. And again, you may not say it the way C.S. Lewis says it. You may not you know, completely get your head around it, but there's things that we go through in life. There's things that we see in life and we just think, I don't think I, don't think I was made for this. <laughs> the good news is you weren't. Everybody lives forever somewhere. You were made for a different world. He finishes the thought. He has also said eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. Just, just think about God as an eternal being, like he never was. He, he's never, never had a beginning, and he's never had an end. 
Just think about that for a few years and see if you can come up with anything that you can grab onto. It's like we can't fathom, we know it, like it's true, but explain that to me. We can't fathom it, it's so big. So I want you to think about this. We're gonna come back to it in a minute. Think about this. If you're bored in life, and, and I know many of you are, I'll just say it, you're bored. You're bored with life. If you're bored in life, why not take a deep dive into the inexhaustible one? Why not find, as we talked about last week, that not only does Jesus satisfy, he has no end. You'll never get to the end of him. You'll never finally get to the the very last page and go, okay, got it. It's kind of like the internet. You're never going to get to the end of it. That's not even my notes. That was right off the top of my head, right? (laughs) Maybe. Maybe God put that longing in us because he wants intimacy with us. Maybe he put that thing in us that longs for a different world so that we pursue him so that we search, so that we look, so that we ask, so that we knock. And so we find. Maybe he put longing for eternity in our hearts because he wants to experience intimacy with us for all eternity, starting now and going on forever. Second thing. Second thing he does, he puts happiness in our lives. I love the honesty of this. Look at verse 12. I know that there is nothing better for people than to be happy. Even if you disagree with everything else in the rest of the Bible, you can agree with that, right? Like we just want happiness. We just want to experience happiness. I mean, it's the, the pursuit of happiness is one of Americans' unalienable rights, right? It's like the pursuit of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The problem is people pursue it and pursue it and pursue it and pursue it and can't catch it. It's like, it's like chasing the wind, to borrow a phrase from, from last week. They can't catch it. And that's partly... It's not totally, it's partly because happiness isn't something you catch as much as something you receive. Like the fruit of the Spirit is joy. One of the things that God develops in us as we pursue him is joy. Joy is something God gives you and produces in you as you pursue him. So don't pursue happiness and joy. Pursue him and watch as he develops happiness and joy in you. And that's one of the ways that he makes everything beautiful, even the really ugly stuff, even the really hard stuff. Third thing he does, he puts opportunities before us. This is for all of us type A personalities. You want to conquer the world? Look at the last part of verse 12. I know that there's nothing better for people than to be happy and to do good while they live. We want to to accomplish something. We want to do good with our lives. And notice when the do-gooding happens. While they live, right? It's not leaving money to charity when you die, leaving money to a church when you die. It happens while we live. And, and I got to say this because I, I think sometimes we get a little confused here. The New Testament teaches that good works done in our own strength are futile. They, they, they have no eternal significance whatsoever. But then for those who place their trust in Christ. He comes by his spirit to dwell in us, to fill us with all the fullness of God himself. And God expresses himself. God loves people through us. And I guarantee you, 
you experience that, you're not going to be bored. When the God of all things expresses himself, loves people through you, when Jesus is working in you and through you, it's impossible to be bored, which is one of the reasons he gives us opportunities, gives us good to do while we live. And then the fourth thing he does to make everything beautiful, he, he, he injects satisfaction in our routine. He injects satisfaction in our routine. Verse 13, that each of them may eat and drink and find satisfaction in all their toil. This is the gift of God. See the three things that you do pretty much every day in that verse? You eat, you drink, and you work. You eat, you drink, and you work under the sun. Those things can become very routine, very boring, right? Like, what did you have for dinner last night? Beef, chicken, fish. What are you going to have tonight? Beef, chicken, fish. Maybe some pork, or you're a vegetarian, I'm sorry, but maybe you're a vegetarian, right? It's very routine. It's, it's boring. But when Jesus invades that space, he fills those things with satisfaction. Again, that's last week. So why does he do that for us? Why does he, why does he do these things? For? He has, he has, we don't deserve any of it. So why does he do things for us? Teacher tells us in verse 14, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. Here's the answer to why he does it. God does it so that people will fear him. I'm not crazy about the translation here. I think revere is a better idea simply because when we think fear, we think of afraid. But, but that's not what he's saying here. He's, he's talking about standing in awe of God, revering him. Why does God fill us with all these good things and make everything beautiful in its time? Because he's awesome and he wants us to soak in all of his awesomeness. And as we stand in awe of him, He's free to make everything beautiful in its time. As we stand in awe of him, he's free to take the painful, broken, mundane things in our life and he makes them beautiful. So I just want to ask you a question. Don't answer out loud. This is just for you. If you're watching online by yourself, feel free to answer out loud. Are you bored? Are you bored? Are you bored with life? Are you, do you feel like the cycle of life just goes round and round and round and round and round and you end up wrinkled in the end? Are you bored? I, I learned early on as a child never to say that I'm bored in front of my dad. <laughs> right? Like if, if, if I ever said that, his response every single time would be, Tim, boredom is a state of mind. Go read a book. I hated reading as a kid. It's like the exact opposite of what I wanted to hear from my dad. And so I learned very early on not to say I'm bored around my dad. And I will neither confirm nor deny that my children have heard that same thing, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> but the teacher in Ecclesiastes, I don't think he would say that. I don't think he would say, boredom is a state of mind, read a book, because even reading a whole bunch of books eventually gets boring. I know that sounds like heresy to some of you. <laughs> but eventually it just gets Boring. The teacher in Ecclesiastes would not say that. The teacher in Ecclesiastes would say, boredom is a state of mind. And if you want to remedy that, 
Stand in awe of God. Stand in awe of him. Get your eyes off of what's happening in you and around you and stand in awe of God. How do you do that? Literally thousands of ways you can do it. Scripture's full of them. The Spirit can lead you to different ways. I just want to share just a couple that have been helpful to me. Um, the, the first way, first way to, to stand in awe of God is to get to know who Jesus is. If you want to know what God is like, get to know Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. If you want to know who God is, if you want to know what God's like, get to know Jesus. And if you want to know how to do that, don't know where to start, here's a suggestion. Get a translation of a Bible that's written in modern day language, the message, New Living Translation, whatever it is, and just get one of those and spend time reading about Jesus over and over and over and over again. Ask the Holy Spirit to point out who Jesus is and what he's like. Okay, here's an example. Um, my small group and I are working through Colossians. So this is Colossians chapter one in the message translation. I love the way that Eugene Peterson says this. He says, he was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade. He is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everyone, everything. So spacious is he, so expansive, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe, people, things, animals, and atoms, get properly fixed and fit together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. You take a section like that and you just soak in it and you read it over and over and over day after day after day. And each time you read it, something new pops out and you're reading it one day and you get to this section, all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe get properly fit and fixed together in vibrant harmonies all because of his death. And you sense Jesus saying to you, I see some broken stuff in you. I see some dislocated things in you. And I want to fix it. I want to put you back together. I'm the one who fixes broken things. I'm the one who puts bones back in to socket. And all of a sudden, you've moved from reading the text, and you're drawn from the text to the person of Jesus. And you're praying. And if you keep going... You get to the point where you're amazed. You're amazed that he loves you enough not to condemn you for your brokenness, but to fix it. <laughs> that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He's putting all of that back to you and you're in awe and you just, you just sit in that. And then as you go about your day standing in awe of him, you start to see him make things beautiful in and around you. And I wish, like, I wish there was a formula for this. I wish there was a checklist that I could give you to say, this is how you stand in awe of God, but there's not. It's, 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 it's this relationship where you pursue him and he fills you with good things. And one of the ways you do that is spend time reading and meditating on scripture. That's one way. Another way, um, you spend time in nature. You spend time in nature. It's, it's no secret around here that I enjoy playing golf. And as I've gotten older, it's become more and more enjoyable for me to play golf with other people. But it used to be that I just wanted to go spend a few hours playing by myself. And it sounds so corny, but 
There's just something. Part of it is because I was, you know, raised doing this, but there's something about a golf course on a cool spring morning with dew still on the ground and the sun is shining. The birds are chirping. I don't hear birds anywhere else except for on the golf course, right? Like it's such a, it's such a serene, beautiful place for me to go, right? And then the guy in the third hole starts cursing because he missed a short putt. And it's like, ah, <laughs> right? But even that, even that, it's like, that's, I, I find myself worshiping on the golf course, because I, I'm paying attention to all of this, his creative genius. And you don't have to play golf to do this, right? Like just go outside and look at a tree for 30 minutes, right? Just, just pay attention to the tree and talk to Jesus about how creative he was in designing the tree and, and you'll be blown away. Some of you are way better than this, at this than I am, right? But go spend time in nature. Another one, um, when you come to worship on the weekends, either here in person or if you're joining us online, come and sing. Like, come and sing. The reason we sing songs when we come together is, is to give us an opportunity to tell him how awesome he is, to stand in awe. I know some of you don't think you have a very good singing voice. I know some of you don't like some of the songs we sing. I know it's weird for some of you to come into a place where, you, where else do you sing in public, right? I know it's new for some of you. It's awkward for others. But I just want to remind you, we're not singing to you. Like this isn't about you. This is about us collectively standing in awe of him. Come and sing. Those are just three of thousands of ways that you can stand in awe of God. And so to, to, we're going to head towards landing this plane. So I, I want to be honest with you here. It's not that I wasn't being honest with you up until this point. I'm just saying. <laughs> I was a little uncomfortable. And this happens from time to time. I was a little uncomfortable putting the message together this week because it just felt like the Spirit was saying, Tim... <laughs> you're not spending a whole heck of a lot of time standing in awe of me. And you're going to tell them that they should do it? So I, need, I, need, I say that to say this. I'm not saying this is what you should do and, and you know, take my cue. I'm saying we need to do this. We should do this. If you're bored, here's one of the ways that you can get out of being bored. This is one of the ways. This is not me sitting up here pretending that I've got this figured out and I'm, I'm nailing it. So instead of telling you how you should do it, I'm asking you to join me in a little bit of an experiment this week. Here's your homework for this week, right? And as I look at my calendar this week, I don't have tons of extra time. But I want to invite you to take some time to, to get quiet, if that's you, to get quiet and go out into nature, to, to, to leave the earbuds in the car, to get into nature, to listen, to look, to smell, to feel the sun on your face and spend time standing in awe of God. Or maybe you're more like me. You want to you get quiet and you want to pull out scripture and you want to read it and you just kind of want to soak in it and you go say to Jesus, Jesus, I want to soak in your awesomeness so I can see you making everything beautiful in its time in my life. 
These are, these are the kinds of things that take us out of the round and round and round and round until we're wrinkled cycle. These are the kind of things that produce a longing in our hearts for eternity. It produces happiness. It opens our eyes to opportunities before us and it injects satisfaction in our routine. So are you bored? Are you bored? Stand in awe. Are you bored? Do you feel like you're just the same old? Are you tired of the same old, same old? Stand in awe. You feel like you're just going round and round and round. Stand in awe. It's the remedy to boredom for the follower of Jesus. Stand in awe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is so much easier for me to stand up here and say than it is to walk out of this place and do. God, it's so much easier for us to come into this place and and think about worship. And it's a little bit more difficult to walk out of this place and think about worship. So would you, through your spirit, through your word that's already spoken today, would you do a work in us, in me, in such a way that we see that you can make anything, you can make everything beautiful in its time, if we cooperate with you, if we cooperate with your spirit who's, who's at work in us. And then as we, as we take some of these practical steps, not to earn anything from you because we've already got it, but we take these steps to learn more and more and more about who you are, about how you've created us, about the, the, the good that you have for us in front of us. God, we just want to be people who continually figure out new ways in, in small ways and big ways to stand in awe of you. And then as we, as we heard earlier from Greg, to, to share that with as many people as possible. Because there's so many people around us that are just bored. And we don't want to be bored. We want to experience the life-changing, eternity-transforming power that you came to give us. So would you help us with this? We love you. We praise you. Thank you again for this quirky, odd, but so very relevant book called Ecclesiastes. Help us to be people who don't get caught in the trap of living under the sun, but people who live in the Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name.